This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mangan. And I'm Luca Lividzmeble. And our topic this week is... Motorsport activities with your own car. Ooh, this is going to be the episode where I'm quiet this week. Yeah. But first, we're going to start with some follow-up. Yes, we do. So, again, we are still on some follow-up regarding the Zelda, Zelda Breath of the Wild. And uh, this week, The Verge was reporting on the number of copy souls compared to the num- number of Switch sold. So Nintendo sold more copies of Zelda Breath of the Wild Switch than the console itself. So The Verge was reporting the numbers that Nintendo uh, gave us and Nintendo sold 925,000 copies of the game versus 906,000 copy uh, consoles. So it kind of it is an amazing attach rate of 102%. And part of me wonders like I know it's easier to publish games than it is to manufacture an entire console, so they might have just sold out all of their inventory of both, and they just happen to make more copies of the games than console. Uh, that's at least my guess for what's going on right now, um, because I can't imagine that every Switch owner is actually buying a copy of the game. Although, if you're buying a Switch right now, there's no other reason really to buy it right now. So, Yeah, exactly. I think we all expected that the attach rate will be close to 100%, but I think nobody was expecting it to be bigger than 100%, so I think that's kind of the news here, unless, uh, so I guess right now the Switch is kind of a Zelda console, and it seems with those numbers that the Switch is off to an amazing start. Hopefully it will stay the same, and I'm sure if it goes in either direction, we'll report back in future follow-up. Yep. Uh, Next up, I have some follow-up for episode 61, which was our last episode on DJ equipment and all that stuff. And uh, funnily enough, like a couple days after the episode was released, uh, Algorithm, which makes DJ, announced DJ Pro for Windows, and it's currently available. Um, I have been looking for reviews of it, uh, but, well, I'll explain uh, briefly why it's hard to find reviews of it. Uh, But before that, uh, what's interesting about DJ Pro on Windows is it uses the WinObc stack uh, from Microsoft to basically port their iOS app over to Windows uh, while also adding additional features for uh, Windows users, which is really nice. And it really shines at its best when it's running on a Surface Studio. And this is sort of the problem uh, with the reviews right now is nobody at any of the big DJ websites owns a Surface Studio and they don't want to buy a $2,000 desktop uh, to run this app in a review, so they're not going to buy it, uh, which is unfortunate because I really want to see a review, like an extensive review of this app while it's running on a Surface Studio. Now, we can also argue about whether or not it actually makes sense to run this on a Surface Studio because like, if you're a club owner, you're not going to put a Surface Studio in your booth. Uh, so the question is, like, well, who is this for, really? I mean, if you're DJing at home and you're a professional DJ, you're probably going to be playing on CDJs or your usual controller setup. It sort of doesn't have much of a point to be playing on a big Surface Studio. So I don't know. Uh, we haven't really answered that part, and I haven't seen any good reviews for it yet, uh, but I will keep looking because I really want to see those in action. Um, related to that, uh, it was my birthday last week, Ooh. and I got some gifts, uh, the first of which 
uh, we'll talk about now, which is the Casio XW DJ One Track Former Controller, which I mentioned last episode. And Luca, if you forgot that I mentioned on last I, episode, because when I told him I got it, he said, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> yeah, I really did. And and the first thing he told me is like, "I didn't mention it," and it's also in the show notes. Like, yeah, <laughs> I did not fall asleep last year. Last uh, last episode, sorry. Yeah. Well. Anyway, what I said on the episode is I was contemplating maybe buying one because they were in clearance and apparently because they were in clearance that meant that somebody thought it would make a good gift for my birthday so i have one now and i am working on a full review of it that i will probably be putting out in the next couple weeks because there is some interesting stuff about this controller and there are like no good reviews for it online either so i'm going to make one interesting and to be honest though i know you give me a lot of crap about forgetting about this one but (laughs) I think the reason why is you talked a lot about the, the pioneers on the CDJs, yeah. and I would just like kind of focus on those. So that's yeah. It was the only mention of defense. Casio in the entire episode, and I think Casio bought Vestax, which was the old company that did all of the DJ controllers, and now their new controllers are shipping under the Casio name. But traditionally, Casio is not a name you would really associate to DJ equipment, which is probably why I didn't really mention them much because they have like two controllers on the market, well, three or so. Uh, most of which are only compatible with DJ out of the box. Um, hmm. So they're not a big, big player, which is why they weren't mentioned much, but it just happened that that was the one I wanted. So now I'm playing around with that and hope to have a review ready soon. It's interesting that they're kind of a smaller name in the DJ area because they are big in instruments or in audio equipment. So maybe that's kind of why they're like foreign themselves into that segment. Yeah. The second gift I got... Uh, amongst others, was Persona 5. And we're going to take a little part of the show and talk about my first impressions of Persona 5 because I know it's a game you've been looking forward to. Uh, it's a game yep. I've been looking forward to, and I resisted buying the Japanese version for many months so I could play the English version, which turns out maybe have been a bad decision, but we'll see. Uh, and I, I just want to give some brief uh, points to try to convince you of you to play this game soon because I think it's Come the best on. Persona. Come and, on, come on, come on. Oh, don't start well, on that. Okay, so let, let me explain this for people who are not familiar with the series. Persona is a game. It's a JRPG. Uh, and most of the games are 80 to 100 hours long. And you could, if he has it in his head that he's going to finish Persona 3 and Persona 4, which he has neglected no, no, no. for years. I'll correct you. <laughs> I gave up on Persona 3 because I found it redundant. Okay, so well. So I still have a personal goal of finish Persona 4. But Persona 3 is completely out of the window right now. Okay, so like a, I gave up on it. That's okay. okay. But uh, one of the issues with Persona, again, is it's sort of it's... Well, it's not really an issue. It's also a feature, but it's really, really long. Um, and since Nikavia wants to finish Persona 4 before playing Persona 5, he's got, like, probably 60 hours left in the game. And then does he really want to start a 110-hour game right after that? Yeah, and let's be honest, it's been so long that I've played Persona 4 that I'm not 60 hours left into it. I need to restart my whole game in it to make sure that I still remember all of the... So, so this is where now. I was going. So luckily, Persona 5 does improve this significantly because there are two new features that really improve... Well, improve. Uh, make it easier to jump back in after a long uh, wait. So there's a story recap now that you can bring up at any time. Uh, so if you forgot what the story was like 30 hours into the game for some reason because you left it there for 18 months 
uh, you can just go into the menu, view the story recap, and you will be all caught up on what the hell is happening. There's also, um, much like other games, like basically every Western game in the history of the last decade, uh, you now have a current objective that is permanently displayed in the upper right-hand corner of the screen. So you no longer have to ask yourself, what the hell was I doing when you come back from your 18-month break? Because it's written right there in the top right corner of the screen, which is a lifesaver. Uh, because if you've been playing other Persona games, you know that it's not always that easy, and sometimes there are deadlines which are not obvious, and you just get a game over because you didn't finish something on time because you forgot you had to do something on time. Uh, so that is kind of cool. Um, I really, really think... Well, yeah, so there, there's a lot of good things about this game. There's also some bad things. Uh, the translation is sort of notorious. In fact, right before I came on air, I was reading a website called personaproblems.com, which is <laughs> all of the issues with the translation job in Persona 5, which um, th- this is sort of why I regretted waiting for the English version, uh, because first of all, Atlas, I don't know what they do, but the voice acting quality, well, n- not the quality of the voice actors themselves, but the quality of the recording of the voice actors has been really dodgy for like the last five years. Uh, there's too much sibilance in their audio and it makes people crazy. Uh, so I've been playing with the Japanese voice track, which doesn't have these issues, but the English voice track does. The translation is also sometimes just inaccurate, which is bad. Uh, because some things flat out don't make sense because they've been mistranslated. And that's not good. Like, I can forgive awkward sentence structure, especially with a game as long as Persona, because they try to get it out relatively soon after launch, which is not easy when you have a 100-hour game to translate. Um, but this is not just awkward structure. It's just stuff doesn't make sense, because they misread it or mistranslated it, and that's bad. Um, there's also issues with the treatment of women in this game, and... I hope it gets better as it goes along, but right now it is not looking good uh, for one of the main characters. Um, and I, I don't want to spoil anything, so I can't really say more than that. Um, the game is super depressing, um, but it sort of goes with the territory. Uh, the theme of the game overall is sort of rebelling against adults in power because all adults in power are morally bankrupt. And this is a very... Uh, I mean, they really try to hit that point very hard throughout the entire well throughout the entire game so far really but especially in the introduction and there's just this very depressing tone especially if you happen to be an adult because basically the entire game is about hating adults uh which is sort of strange um so yeah it it, very depressing tone there is a lot of sad stuff that happens in the game very early on uh and like I knew the tone was going to be serious and dark, but I did not expect it was going to happen like immediately as soon as the game started, and it does. Uh, so it's not really like Persona 4 and Persona 3 to some extent were cool games where you got to hang out with your friends and then at night or after school you went into the dungeon and had the secret double life. And in this one, you spend your entire day getting shat on by everyone. Ooh, okay, that's bad. And yeah, it's it's very different from a tonal perspective. Um so, but I don't want to spoil too much of the story. What I can say is that uh the way the story is delivered is very strange compared to previous Persona games. Uh the entire game for the most part is a flashback. 
Um, and I'm not interesting. I'm not clear when it stops being a flashback. Um, well, I guess it stops being a flashback at the beginning because the, you're getting the flashbacks after the introduction portion. Um, but basically, the entire game is takes place while you're being interrogated for a crime you may have committed. Uh, and your explanation, basically, is what you play, uh, recreate, re- replaying the events that have happened in the past, which is a very strange way to deliver the story because... You basically only know what has happened up until now, and you know that you're being interrogated, but you sort of don't know the in-between, and I guess you spend the entire game sort of clearing up what the hell happened, (laughs) Uh, which is strange, because you can't really summarize the global story, Uh, like I'm 13 hours in right now, and I couldn't really tell you what the global story of the game is, I can just tell you what the story is up until now, which is sort of strange for a Persona game. Um, the dungeon design in this game is completely different, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, previous games had randomly generated dungeon layouts, which meant that you would go in and every time... Well, in Persona 3, this was more so than in Persona 4. Persona 4 had some more permanent elements. But in Persona 3, uh, you would go into the dungeon, and every time you would go in it, the floors would be completely different. The enemy locations would be completely different because they were effectively random. There were no... Uh, there are no spawn points in the, those dungeons. They just basically randomly appear, uh, everywhere. And, uh, in Persona 4, they sort of changed that. So there were certain places that were locked into certain layouts because there were puzzles, miniature puzzles in certain dungeons, and they were very few. Uh, and I think in Persona 4, more than the others, like, it saved the randomly generated dungeon once you went into it, and then it stayed the same, whereas Persona 3, it was always different. Uh, Persona 5, every dungeon, well, so far, uh, is completely designed by a level designer, and it feels like you're playing a Zelda the Wind Waker dungeon. It does not feel like a boring, well, I say boring, boring Persona 3 randomly generated dungeon. It feels like somebody actually made level designs. There's furniture, there's items lying around, there's rooms with actual meaning instead of just hallways and little rooms that are completely empty. Uh, yeah, and, and I would back up your kind of boring about personal, your boring statement about personal three. I think the redundancy and kind of the randomness of the levels creates a redundancy that is kind of ne- necessary there because if you don't have a specific element in the level, that you know that it will be a specific place, it's hard to create to kind of create a need to go to a specific place. You just need to do the same thing on all of the levels. It just becomes harder and harder and voila. And I guess to set the context, Persona 3 has one dungeon. It's just that it is a giant tower that goes on for several hundred floors and every like 50 floors, the color changes. And that's like, basically like the entire dungeons you do for the entire game, uh, except for like a few things that are special for certain events in the game. Whereas Persona 4, each of the main characters in the story has their own dungeon with a specific theme, and then they're randomly generated, but at least they feel different. And in Persona 5, it's literally, we took levels from Zelda the Wind Waker and put them in this game and skinned them <laughs> to fit the theme of the game. It, it's very different, but... I like it because it it feels like if they had made another Persona 4, it wouldn't have felt like that cool. But now there's something big and innovative and big quotes for a Persona game in this one because 
it's half a stealth game and half the usual RPG stuff uh, that you were expecting going into it. And I think I really like the level designs for that. Again, I don't want to spoil too much of it, but the dungeons play out very differently from what you're expecting a Persona dungeon to be. And I prefer this kind of dungeon design to the previous games. It it feels to me that everything you just said is kind of uh, just a, a way to make me buy this game faster. And But kidding aside, like all of the, the talk you just did about uh, the level designs feel to me that I will greatly enjoy those games. And I think that's what I've seen with the past uh, Personas. I started to play Persona with Persona 3 and I've seen friends at the same time play Persona 4 and it felt to me that every time I came back to Persona 4 it, it felt like a game that I would enjoy compared to Persona 3 and everything I heard about the original Personas. It, it feels that with all of the new games they kind of go in a different direction in a bit and um and then they come slowly and slowly more into my types of ter- games like they, they, those games become more in my like i will enjoy them territory if you see what i mean yeah and i think like one of the big sells for persona 4 has been the cast of characters because let's be perfectly honest persona 4 came out 10 years ago and they have milked the series endlessly since then there have been two maybe three anime series uh, a couple movies, I think, there were as well. Uh, there was the fighting game. There was the dancing game. There was, like, they are trying to... Well, they did basically everything that was humanly imaginable with the Persona 4 franchise because people love those characters. And I can't say that there are the characters, at least in Persona 5 so far, are as lovable as the ones in Persona 4, but... I think that the rest of the game is much better than Persona 4. And I think, honestly, you should probably just watch the Persona 4 anime and play Persona 5 instead, <laughs> which is much less long and gives you basically the same experience. Yeah, and every time you tell me that, I like to remind you that I kind of know what happens in Persona 4. I guess. So, so, I, I, think, I think at this point, you might be right. It should maybe, like... Not ditch, but just like say, okay, I'll do Persona 5 first because it's the recent one. And then one day I'll just go in my drawer and remove the dust from my Vita and play Persona 4 Golden and like experience Persona 4 myself. Yep, and it's also like, just in general right now, it is a crazy time for game releases on PS4. Uh, since the beginning of the year, it hasn't been absolutely nuts. There's been Gravity Rush 2, there's been Nier Automata, there's been... Persona 5, there's been Yakuza 0, uh, before the holidays there was um, uh, Final Fantasy 15, there was Neo, there's like too many games coming out on PS4 right now, and ju- that's just PS4, and like t- today uh, Fire Emblem Echoes comes out in Japan, I have that in the mail coming soon, so there is a ton of games to play, and I feel bad for the reviewers who had to play a 100-hour Persona game during all of that madness. Uh, luckily, they had, like, two months ahead of time, so that was good. But it's crazy how much good games are coming out nowadays, and Persona 5 definitely deserves to be at the top of the queue in first or second place, I would say. So that's about all I have to say right now for... Uh, persona 5 maybe we'll we'll revisit it in a future episode once i have more to say about it but right now i'm only 13 hours in and it's also hard to talk about without spoiling stuff uh 
So we should probably move on to the main topic. Good. And it's interesting because it's another week where uh, the kind of general ideas behind the topic is something we're passionate about. And Nick talked last week about uh, is uh, DJ setup and all of the DJ software. And for me, this week it will be car-related stuff. Um, and the reason why I started, I wanted to talk about uh, motorsport activities you can do with your own car is kind of because the warm season is starting for us here in Quebec. It's uh, terrible. No, it's not. No, it's terrible. Not. I'm so happy about summer coming and all that. So done with winter again. Uh. I know you're not. I know you're not, but still. So yeah, this week I've decided to talk about motorsport activity you can do do with your own car. And as you hear this podcast, I would have completed my first uh, activity of the season, but I'll talk about it a bit more uh, on that later. So just as a specific uh, intro and reminder, uh, two years ago on episode 15, I discussed my experience joining a local car club slash scene. And the, the reason why I was talking about that is for this exact topic, because one of the activities that we'll talk tonight is regard is related to that experience of joining a car uh, club. Um, so when I bought my current car, as a reminder, it's a 2014 Ford Fiesta ST. I knew that I would like to introduce myself to some of those uh, motorsports activity. So uh, today, I would like to go through some of them, uh, explain which what each of them consists of, and most importantly, which one I do myself and why. So I've divided. Uh, the activity I chose uh, in three categories. The one I don't do, the one I do, and the one I'm, uh, I'm considering uh, doing for this summer. So let's start with the don'ts. So uh, the two ones that I have in don'ts are drifting and drag events. And we'll start with drift events. Uh, drifting is a set of driving techniques consisting of creating a loss of traction for uh, the rear wheels while the car is in a corner. Uh, usually the driver intentionally oversteer the car and using car control techniques will maintain that oversteer throughout uh, the corners. I'm sure um, m some of you might have seen uh, those either on TV or in any car related video games. Uh, drifting gained a lot of popularity here in North America but the specific origin of drifting is still unknown to this day. Uh, we do know that it originated from Japan and that its popularity there helped it to gain some popularity worldwide, but it's still kind of unknown. We know it's originated from like the racing culture and the racing uh, street culture in Japan, but we don't know uh, where exactly and when. Something I've heard on television, and I have no idea if this is true or not, is that in Japan, apparently, when you get a driver's license, they give you drifting lessons as well. And the reasoning behind that, in theory, is that if you ever oversteer your car, you'll be able to take control of it better than if you don't know how to drift. And they presented that on TV the other day, but saying, well, we would, we would need that much more here in Quebec where we have icy roads and everything, and that would be much more useful, except, of course, the government's response to that is if we teach people how to drift, they will just spend all time drifting because it's too much fun. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that loss of traction is, and that's why, in my opinion, like drifting is kind of a, a hard skill to get because um, we, you need to have amazing car control techniques. And in a way, uh, most people are able to more like 
uh, keep a car from understeering, meaning a car cannot turn and you need to make something for it to turn, or on the contrary, where a car oversteers, so it turns too much, those types of uh, situations are harder to get from a typical driving lessons and usually these days car are not uh, sending power to the rear wheels so uh, oversteer is uh, rarely the case with front wheel drive or all wheel drive cars but to go back to drifting itself i would say that except for uh, road course or races drifting performance are one of the motorsport events that i like to go see or spectate to uh, drifting competition are just impressive and amazing uh, you can see up to like two, three, four, even four cars uh, dancing at the same time on track. And to me, it kind of feels like ballet or even figure skating if we want to kind of relate to our Yuri on Ice episode. Uh, funnily enough, drifting performance are judged on some of the same criteria as those sports like figure skating, ballet or even gymnastics. The choice of moves, the precision and fluidity of executing those moves on track and there's also a show factor or all aspects judged in a competition. Obviously, you can have more specific like drift points, I would call them, like specific points that are judged that are more related to it being a car on a track, like the speed of the car in the curve or at the entrance of the car, at the exit, the angle of the car in the curve or corner, and even... I think that is specifically for the show factor, even the amount of smoke generating during the performance is judged. The first reason why I started with drift and and then I'll go with drag, the drag racing, but the reason why I started with drift is because it could be the one in the, my category of don'ts where I think I could move away from it. Obviously, um, I'll come back a bit on that, but I don't think and I don't, plan on building a car specifically built for doing good drift but i think i would like to attend a draft academy at some point and learn some of those like car control techniques that i'm sure will be uh, could apply to some of the motorsports activity uh, that i do so now that i talk about uh, drift let's move to the other uh, activities that i won't do uh, in the coming future and it's called drag racing so drag racing consists of setting the best time on a, on a defined length strip. This strip is usually measured in miles and can be of a quarter of a mile, uh, a thousand feet, which is uh, 316 of a mile, or even an eighth of a mile. So it can be quite long to quite short. Obviously, since it's on the straight line, in that type of racing, raw straight line power is king. And on a specific drag strip drag strip only two dri two drivers compete against each other at a time so you mean need for speed underground was lying to me what do you mean there were four cars in that one i think oh that's true i remember now yeah but the underground is mostly about like street <laughs> racing and street racing is kind of uh... there are no rules in street racing <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no i i think it would, uh, still it would still uh qualify as obviously a, a drag race that's for sure it has kind of you need to go from point a to point b in a straight line mm. as fast as you can and the first one to cross the line is the winner but yeah i think it might be a bit more risky with more than two cars because I don't know if you've seen a drag strip, uh, like a, a kind of a real one designed for drag, and it's 
kind of pretty wide. It's obviously it's more long than wide, but it reserves a lot of space for each car to make sure that uh, no accident happens, even if it's a straight line, because of the sheer uh, power of some of those cars. Yeah, and the ceremony around around each of those rates is quite different from other racing events. Um, the first thing that the driver will do is the driver will execute a burnout a couple of feet before the race start line. The purpose of that is to eat up those tires to get better traction at launch because um, because obviously the important is to have better time, better launch time and making sure that your tires, which usually are are like well are purposely made to just like stick to the ground as much as they can um, and to do that they need some eat after the burnout each driver lines up to the start line and prepare their, uh, to launch their own uh, car and you'll see that most uh, drag strip use an electronic countdown system that use lights to uh, indicate the countdown procedure uh, for the drivers and those light system with laser on the track is also known as a christmas tree because usually uh the lights color are mostly like yellow green and uh, mostly green and red and some yellow so that's kind of where this is where the name comes from so um each driver will line up obviously they will make sure that they are um, at the start line and then the system will start so the first set of life is to make sure that the car is properly aligned so once you kind of put your car in the laser beam zone one light will just show up okay don't stop. Don't move. You're good. Don't. Uh, you're like properly aligned with the other car. Same for the other person. Once both cars are aligned, the automatic countdown will just start. It's once both cars are aligned, it just done does it automatically. And this is where you see uh, typically depending of the setup, three to five amber lights, and there's um, specific delays between each one that will just light up. <coughs> Excuse me. Usually. It is kind of, I think if I recall correctly, it's 0.4 or 0.5 seconds between each line, uh, each lights. And after, let's say, if it's a setup with three amber lights, the fourth one will be the green light. And as you may expect, green light means go. Once a green light lits up, it is the artist part that starts. You need to execute your launch properly. Because launching a car from a hard stop is kind of a science of its own. I kind of discussed uh, the purpose of doing the burnout because uh, the tire used for drag is a tire that doesn't have any threads in it. It is usually some people will use like normal like street uh, tires, but to get better traction, you need the tire to kind of glue itself, kind of or stick to it, to the ground. So less threads mean more. Uh, um, the bigger the contact patch for the tire becomes so if you have a slick tire where there's no tread you will get better traction and obviously uh, the launch can just kill your performance on drag because you can have let's just say we have two Honda Civics of the same power and Yannick is in one and I'm in the other and for uh, let's put it this way Yannick for uh from sure luck of being a beginner in drag, um, <laughs> I know you would like this example. <laughs> Just like, like he's so good the first time he was executing the launch that he just like executed properly and then just like crumble onto uh, 
under the under the stress of <laughs> executing a drag race with Yannick. So this I, is what uh, happens every time I do something for the first time. <laughs> wow. Okay, I'll remember that then. Mm. But yeah, so two cars could like you you could just destroy your own performance if you miss the start and. Two cars with the same performance might end up at the race line a quarter of a mile later at different times and obviously different speed. Um, between, now that I talk about uh, drift and drag, um, like I said, to me, uh, drift is where, uh, what I like uh, the most. Uh, I like to go see. Uh, also, uh, something I didn't mention is I think that when you attend to a drift event, it is visible and i wouldn't say easy but it's visible the difference between somebody that is amazing at it and somebody that is starting or not so great uh compared to drag because i think drag unless you have just car that does the launch for you which with recent cars a recent sports car they i wouldn't say they all have a launch mode but they do have a computer that could do the launch for you and execute a perfect launch where the most traction is sent through the transmission and the drive shaft and then through the tires so of course uh with drag you see more like uh like muscle car so still there's kind of a, like performance and skills required for the launch but in my book uh drift is a bit better on that side now let's move to the category of activities that i do and it is mostly one so uh, I think I've talked a bit about it in episode 15, but I'll talk it uh, with much details this time. And this one is lapping or also known as track day. So uh, lapping is pretty straightforward. It's like road course racing without the competitive aspect. So it is an event held at a circuit where people can lap around it and where there's no competition allowed. And that's with an, a small asterisk because because some event would allow for a low level of competition, but usually those are reserved to people with a certain uh, level of skill sets. Whether it's a track day or a track night, the format is more or less of the same. So we have a time period, either a day or a night or an evening, and this time period is split into smaller chunks. And those, depending on the types or the race or where you're located, those could range from 15 minutes to 30, 35 minutes each. Another popular format also used in in a a track day is called open pit lane events. And as its name suggests, those events don't don't have uh, any specific number of minutes. And also don't have any specific groups assigned to the track. So it's it gives you unlimited access and unlimited time to any driver during the day. And a bit like putting a bit of competition into track days, this format is also reserved for experienced drivers since the range of experiences and skill can vary greatly because being it open, you just like park your car in the pit line, you prepare your car, and then you can just go for five minutes till 2 30 40 50 minutes if you want you kind of need to know your car know your skills um because nobody's kind of forcing you to step out of the racetrack because time is gone uh to go back a bit to uh, on the time box format a driver with the same 
skill set will go around the same time. That's the one where we will reserve 30 minutes for a specific group and then 30 minutes for another group and we'll alternate throughout uh, the day or the evening. And from what I've experienced, there's kind of usually three groups. We'll have the novices, the intermediate, and then we'll have the advanced group, which can also com be composed of pros or like professional racers. And also I've seen specific events that will, uh, will require you to be on the two upper levels because they, they want to have like novices only events. And what you'll see is if you go and you're, uh, car club, clapping club, uh, you'll start to understand uh, the rules that they have on them, but I'll come back a bit about general rules about uh, track days. So let's talk about what happens a bit on the track. So obviously you go around the track um, and at some point you might catch up somebody that is slower than you. And depending on the sessions level, you could or could not pass them. You might be forced to wait uh, behind them and then go back in the pit lane and then ask for some uh, ask to the uh, people that is uh, managing their track day to give you some distance between the car in front of you or in most cases what will happen is you will be to wait for a reserve section defined for passing and obviously the, the passing section is really to keep the level of security in those type of event uh, higher than it could be so if I take as an example a track that is near my home called uh, ICAR, which is in the city of Mirabel here in the Montreal region, they've defined three groups. They will define the red group, yellow group, and green group, where red is novices and then green is advanced slash pros. So when a session is considered over red level, there's only uh, one passing zone defined on the track, and it's the longest straight portion of the track. As I said, it's really because those are novices uh, i think the strong por the straight portion is about 800 meters to um i think it's nine to a kilometer if i recall correctly and they've defined that in that zone it is the safest way uh, to uh, pass somebody Com if we contrast that with a green session where we assume that it's advanced or even pro drivers those drivers can pass anybody at any location on the track and i've never been to that level yet um, and i think i'm far away from it let's be honest but from what i've heard it kind of gives you the closest feeling of it being a race without it being a real race where at the end of the day you come back with a prize because you finished one first who determines what level you fall into are there like buckets with specific lap times or something that you have to fall into or do you just determine yourself if you qualify as one level or another um from my current experience i've not seen any kind of okay if you do a lap time be below this time you're uh, of that level uh as an example uh at icar i'm considered a yellow but they consider that most people at some point in uh, in their first season or maybe after a season and a half should be uh, considered yellow uh, because it is where they, they assume that people are uh, able to understand what are the the dynamics of their car also uh, don't be not being stressful by the other cars around you because let's be honest like i do own a sports car but it's not the fastest on the market and 
it happens a lot that like more powerful cars like people with better skills than me will be for maybe two or three corners behind me because there's no passing zone until the fourth corner and so you need to handle that pressure and that and it seems weird when you say that but i think the best comparison i could do is when you're on the left lane and somebody wants to go like 20 kilometers above your limit or your speed in the left lane and they're like kind of uh, tailgating you it is that but for three or four corners and that's expected on the highway it's not expected it's super dangerous but the racetrack the racetrack environment is built for that types of driving so you need to handle that pressure and that's what the um that's what they looked at and make sure that you know uh, what is the race line which the race line is the fastest way around the track so they know that you should at most try to follow it as best as you can and you're not zigzagging in a way from like the, from uh, each corner to each corner while not following uh, the race line so that, that they'll use that some uh some other lapping clubs or track will use they could use a uh, lapping time um i know um i know i'll be attending an academy uh next weekend and i know they will put uh people with evaluation and making sure that you know what you do they will have maybe instructor with you in the car this is uh stuff and they will be able to evaluate you with uh some excuse me some criteria that i just mentioned so it's not like okay uh, i i've decided that i'm good so i'll just go to the next level uh they seriously don't want to do that because they know from past experience that by doing so and like kind of letting people evaluate themselves we kind of over exaggerate a bit as humans in general so they want to keep a certain level of security in a sports that it that it contains lots of risk okay so yeah um so after i've discussed uh what happens about passing people so now you're you cut out with that slower car and you're also now in the passing zone in most lapping events obviously like i said rule changes per event the slower car needs to indicate to the faster car that it acknowledges its presence and it gives it the right to pass him or her usually this is done by using either your blinkers or your end and this is commonly named the point by um, in some of the events i attend they really ask you to point really point to the uh, driver behind you to pass uh, on the specific uh, direction where you point at so hence the name point by um any race uh, event will start usually it's mostly for uh track days because for uh track nights around here in montreal uh they kind of assumed uh that you know the rules and they like the first time you'll try to pay your membership they will make sure that you explain your rules and to uh, have access to that membership you might have, you will have a smaller course but for track days um, there will always be a driver's meeting before the day starts and the purpose of that meeting is to explain the rules for the specific track or the specific type of the one uh, of event they want to do the which for which flag will be used where are the passing zone which format will be used whether it's like groups or open la- open pit format what's the schedule of the day if there is a lunch break and stuff like that all of that is information you'll learn in the driver's meeting 
And like any race, real races, there's always a driver's meeting before uh, a race starts. So it's important to attend it because you'll get information to keep uh, yourself secure and to better enjoy your day. So Yannick asked a couple of questions regarding that, especially about the levels. But if you want to introduce yourself to lapping, uh, I would strongly suggest you to find a local circuit or even and see if they have uh, lapping clubs. Lapping clubs are usually circuit-based, regionality-based, or even brand-based. And what I mean by brand-based, and here in Montreal, I don't think it's in Montreal, I think it's in Quebec. I forgot, but I know that there's kind of a BMW driving club. I I know uh, Porsche's, Porsche's is pretty known pr- for that. They have the Porsche's of America, which also have like regional uh, clubs that also have uh, lapping events. So obviously, uh, go to any uh, to go to your popular social network uh, for us here. Uh, it may, it's Facebook or even Twitter or anything else, and I'm sure you'll be able to find those uh, lapping clubs and also those racetrack, and you'll be able to get all of this information. Another way, except maybe introducing yourself to those clubs and see what they have as whether it's uh, like introductory course or any. Uh, academy is to attend to a real i wouldn't say a real school but it's kind of to attend to a driver specific academy or school again some of racetrack will have their own school or partner with a specific school and personally that's what i did for the last uh, two years two summers um, i looked at the lapping clubs around and also i looked at any driving school and like I said in the, in the intro, when this podcast gets released, I will have completed my first activity of the season, which will be the driving academy of one of the lapping groups uh, here in Montreal. And for the last two seasons, I've realized that starting the season with either a school or a refresher and not a full on like typical track day where there's no instructor, I found it pretty interesting and it greatly helps because Yes, you use those skills you learn on the track on your normal driving, especially like car control and like uh, when we talk about uh, drifting, like oversteer on understeer and understanding those concepts and how to uh, cope with them and make sure that you keep control of your car. Those are really useful on the streets. But since you don't do that every day and since the winter is long and you just forget about those, it is super useful and it's a great refresher. Uh, in my opinion, lapping has some of the lowest bar to entry. Uh, we'll talk about the lowest one, in my opinion, but I'm sure you can do it with any Econo box. Obviously, not every car is track worthy. But what I'm saying here is with mod- minimal modification, you could enjoy lapping a couple of times during a summer or during your own year if you're lucky and you don't have snow like us. And also keeping your investment low because... I think Yannick talked about like DJ pads, uh, DJ hardware last uh, episode, and we talk a lot about gadget. We love to spend on gadget, mm-hmm. but at some point it becomes expensive. Yep. And obviously, I'm not a mechanic, and all of my experience in lapping also helped me improve my uh, my mechanic skills. Not skills, but knowledge at least. But I would say that, and from also other sources, and I've, I will put a couple of links regarding uh, how to introduce yourself uh, to lapping in the show notes. But the typical modification required to do on your car to make it more like lapping ready is a proper set of sports tire and better brake. Because obviously, if we start with tires, tires are your only contact uh, 
your car has with the road. So any improve, improvement to their performance attribute will, reser, will result in better and hopefully more predictable uh, car handling. On the brake system side, the main downside of any typical system ship with your car, uh, that would be excluding any sports car, is that it cannot sustain repetitive hard braking. After a few hard braking, the system will start to eat up and it's not able to uh, cool itself down and remove this heat around the brake pads or the brake disc. And by doing so, it will lose some of its braking power. So that's why modification to your brake system, whether it's better br better disc, better pads, maybe better brake fluid that transmit this uh, the pressure on your pedal to the brakes, and something that, that helps to sustain more heat and maybe more uh, endurance when you do hard braking is something that will be uh, greatly important on track. And obviously, I think also at the same time, I'm not talking about power modification because when you start and i'm still at that level i still think that keeping your, your car without performance modification is the best way to learn because you are able to learn with the, the power of your car and then maybe when you get more skills you could add a bit more power and then gain more new skills because your car is not uh you start to have like more difficulty to keep control because there's a bit too much power or it's uh, you change the type of car you went from a front wheel drive car to a rear wheel drive car so it doesn't end all the same way in curves so that's why i think that those two uh, modifications are kind of the first step to make sure that you can enjoy car lapping and enjoy a track day without breaking the bank too much I want to do a quick a small tangent before I go about the future category, about what we do, what we usually call racing. Uh, you obviously, uh, people always talk about the bigger series. A couple of example, Formula Racing, Formula One, IndyCar. I uh, also know there's a lot of like worldwide or just national series that will use a production car or even stock car. I think our American friends will talk a lot about NASCAR. Um, but Less known is more smaller series, whether regional, national-ish, or even uh, lemon series where it's like any beater car you have, you can just do that. But those smaller series are always a good next step after being on the track a lot. And obviously, if you want to kind of go to the next level after lapping, um, getting your drive, the competition license, because if you want to go to the next step after lapping, usually it's more racing events and those will obviously require more modification on your car, more money, more licenses, because now you might have to attend real racing academies that will provide you with licenses or diplomas. Uh, obviously, when I say diplomas, it's not university diplomas, but you, you get the you get the, the idea here is those then those uh, those competition licenses or driving licenses typically for racing will be the required once you uh, participate into uh, racing events now let's talk about uh, the two other activities that i'm considering uh, to start this year that are also related to uh, track days and lapping the first one is called time trial or also known under the name time attack and time attack originated from japan again of we course, they, invi of... they invent everything good. Wow, I couldn't say it better myself. Mm, I know. 
So I it was also it also originated from Japan, and we get a bit more information. Uh, we knew that for drifting, it's more like in the 70s or even earlier. But here we know it's uh, it was in the 80s, and also known under the name of Superlap. And that type of activities is a circuit-based activity again. So we go to the track, and the gist of it here is we add something more to the lapping. So what we add is we want to know who's the fastest, but no, not who's finishing first. So the goal is not to finish first crossing the line, but after a determined number of lap, uh, we need to know uh, who was the fastest around one lap after maybe like 50 laps. So you would say it might be might closely resemble a qualification challenge in any typical like Formula One races because that's what they do. They go around the track. They have a, a, a finite numbers of lap or a finite number of minutes that they can try to set the best lap. Obviously, it's without um, without the uh, the qualification aspect of any race. A big, a big example of that is with F1. So time attack and time trial is really to just set the best lap time. With racing, it just it helps you to be better positioned on the start line. And nowadays, time attack is also known throughout the world. It exited Japan. It's big in Japan. It's big elsewhere. And it's even as its own world challenge. And it's named the World Time Attack Challenge. And this year's uh, edition is held in Sydney in uh, next October. So, uh, and it's uh, super interesting that uh, some of those uh, less known sports, because racing has been done since the car has been invented, but some of those uh, motorsports events are kind of more recent. And it's interesting and fascinating to see the way they get spread around the globe and their following they have. Um, there's a small difference between time trial and time attack. Time trial is a bit more flexible because it's open-ended. Imagine where, uh, if we go back to our discussion about lapping, we said that an open pit lane day was you just go in and out of the of the track whenever you want during that day. Time trial is a bit like that. It's flexible. You don't have a num a set number of laps or a set number of minutes to set the better time it's just that okay anybody can go throughout the day and then at the end of the day we'll just look uh and yeah so it's really like like i said at the end of the day we'll do it and it's not like after 50 laps or after 20 minutes that we do that the last activity we'll talk for tonight is autocross autocross is a form of time attack and like any time attack event the goal is to go through uh the circuit as fast as you can Obviously, the lower your time is, the better it is. But there's two main differences that make autocross a category of its own. The first one consists of the number of cars competing at the same time on the track. Uh, time attack is, a bit, like I said, it's a bit like lapping days or even racing. There's a lot of cars, 15, 20, even bigger numbers of cars running their laps at once. In autocross, only one person go, can go through its lap at a time. You might think that it makes it will make those events way longer to compare to any like racing events or time attack events, but the second difference solved this problem. And the second difference is that on autocross, the course on which the event is held is way shorter than any typical race circuit. 
um, we would say like one or two kilometer tops in length so you could expect lap times of around the one minute mark or even way below it for what i've seen those events are held in big parking lots or even airstrips and less on a normal road courses because the organizer of those events create their own obstacle courses using cones so they will modify the they will use their environment to better fit what they need for autoclass. As an example, I've seen organizer create a series of chicane on the long straight portion of an original circuit and also place cone uh, to create kind of a, a smaller technical uh, circuit. And uh, since it, uh, since the track is always created for the event, you cannot expect the same path for the same event year after year. This is what keeps autocross different from time attack and any other race-based event you cannot rely on learning the track because the because you can expect to go at any time to a specific track and it wouldn't change because changing a race track is quite expensive so they don't do it and also it's kind of one less variable people can start to learn it and start to learn uh, any specificities about it to improve their lap time and here with autocross it's more about um, the driver skills because usually those like i said those tracks are shorter so you don't have long straights so driver skills and car control car control will outweigh pure engine power you need to make sure that you keep momentum in curves and because obviously since no long straights you cannot kind of save yourself if you took a corner poorly and you have a more powerful engine than your competition. You could like just use that engine, a powerful engine in long straights. Usually in autocross, this is, uh, this is in my opinion, the lowest one, which, uh, the lowest cost to entry activity you can have because like I just said, pure engine power does not help you to excel at it. You could enter it with your day-to-day car and like lapping, you will need to do some modification, but uh, you could do one event and because of the compactness of the track, it puts difference, uh, it put difference, it stress your car a bit differently. Obviously, uh, your brakes and your tire will be used quite heavily. So like I said, for lapping, those two modifications are obviously needed for autocross. Um, so like I said, uh, autocross and, uh, time attack are two activities, uh, that I would like to do. Usually I always focus my schedule during the summer on lapping because this is where I get, uh, the most out of a specific day. If I have a day where I can plan for lapping, um, usually, especially around uh, Montreal, uh, there's a couple of autocross events, but it seems to me that there's a lot of lapping events, so it's where I can uh, get the most out of my uh, time and all of my car too. And by owning a small sports car, I think it's also well fitted for autocross. So that's why I want to uh, maybe attend one or two autocross events if I can uh, this summer. And maybe to conclude a bit, uh, like I said in my previous uh, car episodes, I always liked car but was a mechanic noob and my uh, need to do more uh, lapping and like all of my motorsports activity helped me gain knowledge into that field. And 
what I've discussed tonight, uh, what I discussed today about all of those uh, activities, uh, there's a lot of motor sports related activities that I didn't mention that could better feed uh, your needs or your liking. So there's rally, there's hill climbing that will be a mix of uh, autocross and a bit of uh, time attack because obviously hill climbing is really you go from the bottom of the hill and at the top and you need to go the fastest and there's like really a shit ton of motorsports activity uh, you can do obviously if you're more of a motorcycle fan um, you can do some of these activity i mentioned that will be well uh, well optimized for the different types of vehicle you want to use so i do hope that all of uh, all of that give you more idea of what you could do with your own car and what you can expect in your local car community. And I do hope that I was able to kind of uh, share what I know. I'm sure that I might have made some mistakes. Uh, and some people might just like send me an email. That's okay. This week I take all of the emails. Usually I say it's Yannick taking the emails. But this week I will take them. And obviously I would like to know uh, if you will be interested to do. And maybe we'll see. Uh, and obviously I expect that once I do more of those events throughout the summer, I will report back and see, maybe report back if I attended another cross event and maybe say, uh, talk about my experience, what I like, what I disliked about it compared to uh, lapping, for example. Hopefully with some GoPro footage this time. Oh, yeah. I was waiting for that comment. <laughs> I was waiting for that. I've been waiting all day to get a little jab in there about the GoPro. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I knew you would do that. But yeah, I, I think um, I think it will be uh, it will happen. But maybe if I go on a quick a small tangent about GoPros, uh, I think I'm, I think it's been on my subject list since I got the GoPro. But I really need to talk about video workflows mm. we talk a lot about photo workflows but it feels to me that all of the workflow i have with photos that app don't fit so well with producing shit ton of video and also what do you do with the raw footage once you edited it but i think we can keep that for another episode but yeah um Danik, uh, you've been pretty vocal in the past about some of the GoPro footage I've done uh, last year. <laughs> that never came out. <laughs> that never came out. I know. Uh, it, it came out. It came out of the GoPro at least. Well, you know what's hilarious is that uh, on the what to watch screen on YouTube, it keeps putting your face there. But since you have no videos on YouTube, it just shows me the videos you've liked, and it's always the same videos. So hopefully you could change that to at least have something new show up for your face on what to watch. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Okay, I will say that. So um, I've bought something new still. Again. Mm. Mm. And I, I don't know if you've watched any of uh, people's like typical track day videos where they use their GoPro, but also will put uh, like car computers data so whether the engines the speed the engine rpm <laughs> the percentage of troll input and brake input and all yeah but the uh, obd2 dongle that i can plug in the car and download any like apps that can talk to the car computer and get all of the information and record it and yes fancy i spent money again yeah i know cool so one more reason to edit a video together and put it on youtube <laughs> Okay, I got the message. I, I've put okay. 15 videos on YouTube since the beginning of the year. Gets get cracking, boy. That's true. Um, That's true. Yep. 
Uh, so that's cool. Uh, if you want to find show notes for this episode, you can find it at limitlesspossibility.net slash 62, or you can find all of our episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. We post links to every episode of the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Sakarina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Ducadivie at Lucanoche. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And yes, I will, I will accept any comments about me not posting any track day related videos Good. on my YouTube channel. That's okay. I will take them. Good. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.